Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Matthew Shipp is a highly revered and inventive pianist based in New York City. Originally from Wilmington, Delaware, Shipp is prolific, playing with countless musicians and recording many, many albums over the past 30 years, both as a leader and as a sideman who has quietly made his mark as one of the most gifted and idiosyncratic artists in the continuum of jazz. After a lengthy stretch directing, curating, and making music released, for Thirsty Ear Recordings Blue series, Ship announced that the Matthew Ship Trio release, Piano Song, which arrived in the world in January of 2017, would be his final album for Thirsty Ear. Here, Ship and I discuss the inspiration behind each and every piece on Piano Song. Also, perhaps surprisingly, we discussed Gigi Allen at one point. Sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, Granddad's Donuts and Hello Fresh Canada. This is Matthew Ship discussing piano song on the 348th episode of Creative Control with your host me, Vish Khanna. Hi Matt, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Nice to speak with you. Where where in the world are you right now? Well, I'm in my own psyche, if that's situated in the world, but geogra- <laughs> geographically I'm in New York City as we speak right now. And, and how are things in New York City? Well, New York's changed a lot, you know, in the last few years and I'm getting older, so I'm basically just concentrated on my own life and my own things. So it's, in one way, it's the same as you get up every morning and you do what you have to do. But in other ways, it's changed a lot. And then unfortunately, um, the the current 
um, whatever you want to call him, President of the United States, lives in this city. So there's a lot of activity as far as protesting in front of his apartment building and um, stuff like that. So, um, you know, this city is it's, it's interesting right now. It's it's home to the president who like 99% of the people that live in this city hate him. Mm-hmm. It's still New York, though, you know. <laughs> Have you participated in any of the protesting? Oh, yeah, I'm very, very active Yeah, in that, that regard, yes. I've noticed that you're rather outspoken in your disdain for him, and you are engaging with people uh, who will argue with you about this. Has that been helpful? It's been, well, it's been time-consuming, <laughs> especially like if I get trolled by a Trump troll on Facebook, and I had to, like, you know, and I respond, and then it can, there's been times where that's gotten into couple of hours you know yeah a back and forth before i had to block them or something so um i don't know why my facebook page has been such a magnet for trolls there was a period where it was that's kind of not happening at all now yeah but there was a period where that was getting pretty intense and i don't know why but it was yeah it, it's uh well it's good of you to speak out obviously everyone a lot of people are speaking out and and uh, there's equal force from i guess his side of things it's yeah i can't imagine i was just in new york briefly a couple of weeks ago maybe a month ago now and i i could feel it a bit too i was in brooklyn so i didn't feel it as much maybe but <laughs> I, could, right. I could kind of feel i felt odd being in america it's the first time i've been in the states since uh since the election and uh, since the election result, I should say. And uh, yeah, I don't know how you're doing down there. I, I, I mean, rather, I, I know how you're doing down there, but I don't know how you're managing. So right. the fact well, that Well, in one way, life goes on day to day, you know, but in other ways, well, actually, that's not true because for a lot of people, there's immediate effects of things that are, you know, very bad. But um, yeah, I think there's there's hope down the line. Good. Yeah, that's, I think, what we have... To cling to really at this point I, I don't i don't think he's going anywhere myself exactly yeah. yeah you have to kind of resign yourself to that and and just do the best you can well oh, oh, oh you mean he's not going anywhere as far as i actually think he is going somewhere <laughs> you, you you think he will be removed i i think there's a chance where he might get overwhelmed and um actually you know try to find a way out that that doesn't absolve him but that that he can make it seem like he's just moving on, and I, I I think there's possibilities of a few things happening down the line. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, who's to say? I'm not a legal expert, but I do know that he's never been indicted for anything. He's somehow slippery. He's the Teflon Don. He gets away right. with everything, and at some point, everyone you know it'll catch right. up to him. But I, yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Especially when you're on the largest stage in the world, you yeah. know stuff stuff you've gotten away with your whole life that you're so used to getting away with just changes because i mean you know he's on the biggest stage where else does it go and he's always messed up everything and, and moved on but there's really nothing to move on from there so it has to kind of catch up somehow well after working with the democrats most recently a friend of mine joked that or maybe i don't think he was even joking he suggested that trump seemed to be setting the stage for uh, a 2020 run as a democrat switching <laughs> well he started I mean, just recently, I don't know how close you follow everything in American politics, but he he actually sided with um, the Democratic minority leader. No, that's yeah, that's what I'm referring right. to. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So you know, he he's definitely trying to mess with Republicans' minds now, and I I put nothing past him because he has no core values of sorts. So <laughs> exactly. I exactly. Yeah. No, nothing nothing would surprise me. 
He seems like because he comes from professional wrestling, I think of like the wrestlers that go from heels to heroes, you know, just like <laughs> back, back and forth. He's now he's palling around with Schumer and Pelosi and, and right. you know, contradicting Paul Ryan within a day. It's very it's I hate talking about this so much, but I talk about it with everyone because I can't I'm I follow it very closely. And it's right. uh, anyway. Right. Well, a friend of mine named Mike Edison just wrote a great article comparing Trump to professional wrestling. And Mike Edison is an ex editor of a couple of professional wrestling magazines. And he, you know, he, he knows that world inside out. It, it's in the baffler. It, that article is definitely worth checking out. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll check that. I will check that out. No, I think I've, I have a lot of people have pointed this out that he comes from wrestling and he seems to be, he, all of his rallies seem like, you know, amping up a crowd at a wrestling match. And... Right. Except, except one thing, I wouldn't say he comes from. I would say he got at, as running casinos and you know and stuff. He got involved with wrestling for he and he's friends with Vince McMahon. Yeah. He, he, right. Yeah, but, but he he's... became a character in the WWE. I mean, in a way, he comes. I know what you're saying, but he, right. he he immersed himself in that world, and then that led to reality TV. Like, there's all this weird like pseudo reality that he immerses himself in right right <laughs> and that makes him a slippery figure because you can't really figure out what the persona you don't even know if there's a person there it's a persona completely and right he, he relishes that he shifts within you know it's the the old thing about him is like whoever he talks to last that's the facts he will parrot that's the the stance exactly he will take. yeah he's just anyway uh, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating uh, on many levels, but I don't want to dwell on him uh, because right. we're here to talk about uh, a fantastic album, and I and and the fact you know, uh, depending on when people hear this, you're coming to the Guelph Jazz Festival, the city in which I live, which has one of the the world's greatest uh, and most inventive jazz festivals, and we're happy to have you back. Glad to be coming back. Yeah, yeah. So I thought we would spend our time today focusing on piano song. Uh, which uh, came out uh, earlier this year, in the year 2017. And um, it is monumental on a, a few different levels, and I think we're going to get into that as we go. I want to begin by asking you to tell me more about the Matthew Ship trio. How do you know the players, and, and how did this trio come together? Um, well, Michael Bissio and I met each other. I mean, I I met Michael years ago. Um, actually, I was the time I met him, I was doing a duo concert in Seattle um, in the 90s and a duo concert with William Parker. And um, Michael and his wife at the time came out to the gig and I met him and he had just recorded an album for Silk Heart Records mm -hmm. back, back then. And I had recorded an album for Silk Heart also. So I knew his album. But, um, you know, we just touched base and said one day, you know, we probably play together. And then, you know, a decade goes by, more than a decade, <laughs> and he moved to the East Coast. And um, William had been the basis in my trio for years, but, when, you know, when William started really touring a lot as a as a leader, um, he was hardly ever around. And um, so, you know, I had to kind of have another working situation if I wanted to work. So, you know, at that point, um, Vicio joined my trio, and that was about five, six, seven years ago. I don't remember mm. exactly. And, you know, we we kind of like blood brothers of sorts, you know. Well, where's, and where's he from? He's from upstate New York, okay, from the Albany area. But he lived in Seattle for about 20 or 30 years, I think. Oh, okay. um, 
Newman Taylor Baker. Now, I've gone through a lot of drummers in my trio. In the um, early 90s, it, my first trio was Whit Dickey, mm-hmm. who I had, I had met with um, in Boston through a friend, because Whit went to New England Conservatory for a couple of years, and I did also. But I met him after I left when he, um, through a friend. And then after Whit Dickey, he was Susie Ibira. And then after Susie, Susie, was, rem- remarkable drummer, Susie Abir. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, right. And she um kind of went off teaching. She teaches at Bennington College, and she kind of got out of the New York scuffling jazz musician day to day existence. And um, after that, it was Guillermo E. Brown. Mm-hmm. And then um, I don't remember when uh, Guillermo kind of moved to the West Coast at one point, and um. Now, um, Newman Taylor Baker, the way it's interesting, he's a very interesting story. When I was a teenager, Newman, um, who's 70, I think Newman's 72 or 73, so he's a whole generation older, two yeah. generations older than myself. But when I was a teenager, he actually was living in my hometown for a while, which is Wilmington, Delaware. Hmm. And I used to follow him around with different, watch him with different bands. I mean, I never introduced myself to him, he didn't know who I was, but. I used to actually follow him around as a teenager. So fast forward, I'm living in New York, and he I start seeing him around. He actually lives on the same street that I do, on 3rd Street in the Lower East Side. So, you know, I met him and started talking to him, but it was just, you know, I said, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to follow you around. You were living in Wilmington. He goes, yeah, you know. And he lived in Philly for a while before he lived in Wilmington. Philly is 20 minutes away from Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah. So so it's just funny that, like, as a teenager, I followed him around on the street, even like, you know, kind of following him around on the street like a stalker, you know. (laughs) Really? You weren't just following his performance schedule. You were following him around? No, more his performance. Oh, okay, but, right. he, but he but he actually lived in Delaware, very close to where I lived. So I used to see him around the street sometimes. But then I, you know, years later, I moved to New York, and he lives on the same street that I do, and he ends up in my trio. And um, and with him is like you know, it's really great to have. He's played with Ahmad Jamal, McCoy Tyner, so it's kind of really great. Billy Harper, he's played with, so it's really great to have a drummer with that pedigree and that type of real um I, I don't i really tend not to use the word um c- credibility because you know s- somebody could walk out of a mental institute and never play with anybody and fit you know and be proper right. for what you're trying to do but but i and i don't really think it's necessary to come out of a, such a strong tradition traditional b- jazz background but, but in, in his case and for where I am at this time in my life it's really good to have somebody of that sort who has the openness of mind that he has and 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 the freshness of mind you know but yet has that type of jazz pedigree it's kind of really works for where I'm at right now yeah more about his experience than his credibility per se yeah yeah exactly right okay so, so, so um and, and Bissio you know has um play with everybody from playing with Charles Gale for a short period to he's like played in a play where he was Yul, Yul Brenner's accompanist and supposedly Yul Brenner's favorite bass player, you know? Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> so these, so he has, you know, he's been around the block in a lot of ways. Right. So this particular, you mentioned you've, you've gone through many different drummers and, and it sounds like it was mostly circumstantial uh circumstantial reasons they just decided they were going to do other things how long has this particular 
version of your trio then been playing together? Did you say five to seven years? I think this particular trio has been together three years. Three, three, three. I think three okay. or three and a half. We have two albums out, um, The Conduct of Jazz and Piano Song. Yeah, okay. So and with, with two albums, it makes me think it's been three or three and a half years. Right, okay. Let's talk about any notions you had about Piano Song going into these sessions. What was your mindset? What were you hoping to, if anything, were you hoping to accomplish anything in particular? Um, this is going to sound kind of strange because you don't really hear it on the album, but I think a, a major inspiration for the album was pygmy music. Oh, and you don't, I mean, there's nothing overtly pygmy about the album, but I think what I was aiming for was, and this, you know, if this makes any sense, a jazz ambient album, but you know, the watercolors are jazz because we're jazz musicians. But what I really like about pygmy music is that it's, it truly is the real ambient music. Because if you listen to pygmy music, they really blend into the, into the, to the, the jungle. I mean, there's, it really is music created by people in their living space and their environment of their environment. It's kind of a collaboration between their environment and themselves. And it's completely natural in that sense. So I was thinking, you know, us as, you know, New York city jazz players, I, I want something that's really of us and of the environment. And, and it, when I say something's an inspiration, it's, it's an inspiration on such an abstract level because people are always looking for the direct corollary. Well, if it's an inspiration, you know, did you take some pentatonic skills and do, do this because it's, no, it right. wasn't that, but it was just something in, in the, the back of my head, whereas the, in the pygmy music, they really make the jungle and where they are, you know, a part of the music where there's just really no lapse between life and what's being generated in the, act, the process and the act of making music. That's what I was going for in this album. So kind of watercolors of what it is to be a modern jazz musician. But something I wanted something so natural sounding. And, you know, how do you, I mean, I'm saying that in a calculated way, so you can't calculate that, but you can try to set up the environment where that happens, you know. Yeah, just to, just to expand upon that, you, you were trying to make music that reflected your, like the, my understanding of pygmy music is, is pretty rudimentary, but I understand, like, it kind of reflects life in, in the Congo, in Africa. Right. So you were trying to make music that reflected life in New York? Well, it reflected us. Right. Know. Okay. Whatever our, our environment is, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to start saying it's urban New York music, you know, because there's so many things that could become that, you know. Sure. Um, um, but I, I'm I'm just saying that there's something about the naturalness uh, and the um, beauty of pygmy music, and that I, you know, and I'm not. I'm, it's not like you know, Watermelon Man, you know, on a Herbie Hancock album where, you know, you were taking a, a riff or something like that. It's just a very, so that, that's going in now. Now, I mean, that can mean anything. I mean, it, yeah. that means really just relaxing and being yourself. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to take my trio and figure out what makes these guys tick and, um, and, and create an environment where they feel free. Um, because I, I didn't, um, I didn't do a lot of planning. I mean, I did sit around and think about each cut and what was going to be, what the atmosphere of it was going to be, but I kind of 
wanted to do something where I knew that these guys could come in and add something and that, that could shift the whole emphasis of what the composition is. But I, but something where they initially felt very comfortable with, but maybe were slightly challenged. I see. All right. Well, I appreciate the insight about it going in. I think it's uh, it's now time for us to begin <laughs> this exercise of trying to remember where some of these songs came from. And I believe the best way to begin is at the beginning. We're going to start by discussing this rather plaintive solo piano piece, Links. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, with that, I mean, A, A it's a solo piano piece. B, it's, it's an intro, so it's it's trying to set a mood. C, especially since it's called Lynx, um, I think I'm obsessed with transitions and um, the process between transitions, because the process between any transition is kind of a, um abstract thing. Some, sometimes it has no um, corporeal. I mean, it's, there's nothing corporeal about it. You can't. Yeah, you know, it's a link between this and this, and this and this are the actual states things are in, but the link is invisible. Hmm. So I, I was trying to um, convey that, even though that's an introduction. And also, I, I think the thing that really drove that piece is it is a very pianistic conception, whereas it's you know I could be like a jazz Chopin in that sense, which which Chopin is like a piano poet whose world centers around the piano and it's actually even divorced from the rest of classical music. And you can't think of Bach or Beethoven as a um, prelude to Chopin. Chopin's his own weird island right. that that exists, just exists. It just is. And it's very piano-centric vision that I guess you can put in the world, in the historical flow of classical music, but it's not really a part of it. It's, it's its own weird world. So the conception of that piece is very pianistic, very piano centric, but it's, it's linked to the album in the fact that it's serves as an introduction. And it also, since I called it links, it, it's, it's involved with the headspace of what is the link? I mean, okay. For instance, if you wait, if, you don't you don't have a scar on yourself and you hit yourself and you do have a scar there's some process but you know it, there's the, the the state of the scar and the non-scar and then there's mm -hmm. something in between and th those things in between are always very evanescent or just very hard to put your hands on but um so it's meant to be in a you know kind of a spooky little intro introduction to what's going to occur but it's just letting you know that you're going, a lot of things are going to occur, and the transitions between them will be um, spooky and hard to put your hands on, but hopefully the whole thing will hold together as an organism. Yeah. You mentioned the word spooky there a couple of times, and I, I was thinking of the there's a rather dramatic six-note kind of coda. It is spooky. <laughs> why? Why would you want to start 
with a spooky song? Why are you trying to scare people at the top of your record? Well, I guess I'm a spooky type of person. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> so. you don't seem spooky to me. You seem very friendly. <laughs> well, I, I'm not fearful of my life right now. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just, you know, I mean, I, I'm talking about my creative life. It, yes. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely different than my social mask, you know, which is, uh, you know, so. But my I'm I definitely deal in, in um. let's just put it this way. I, I used Roy Campbell and I, the trumpet player, great, late great trumpet player. A lot of our favorite talks were about horror films. So I see. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this is going to figure. uh prominently in our discussion as we go because i think there's a lot of that motif uh, occurs uh, as the record goes on so in that sense i totally understand why you might want to be like this might be a spooky experience so get ready right yeah well speaking of moving on let's let's move on to uh, cosmopolitan this is a, a busier full trio exploration I, I view the album as a city. I mean, my, to me, my albums are are metropolitan landscapes of the mind. So it's very, it's very my all my albums and and this one are informed with the idea of city space landscapes of the city um, architecture of that. And you know, I don't want to you know I don't want to get into the whole like kind of El Antonio thing of um, of a you know concrete jungle or the Mingus type of thing but it's de definitely like it's not just New York centric my, my albums are, are about city landscapes because that's what I grew up in I didn't grow up in New York I grew up in Wilmington Delaware but this it's a small city and the downtown area is definitely like a city mm -hmm. so all my albums have that and a lot of my albums are involved with trying to see what like a, a futuristic city would be like so uh, you know like the landscape of a city on another planet mm -hmm. um so that gets into kind of maybe some like sun Ra type of um things or 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 even someone kind of like late david bowie type of things with right. albums like like low <laughs> and stuff like that right. so that that cut is definitely cosmopolitan because it's, it's you're walking down city streets um, and then, you know, it's also like the, probably the most jazz cut. Now, if you listen to the, the bass line at the beginning, it's very like the bass line of So What from, you know, and that's purposefully. Yeah. But, but then it's, it's, it's also layers and layers of concrete above that. So it's, it's meant to be like a scaffolding of sorts with a jazz underpinning and a futuristic city landscape. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about cosmopolitan and, and the future because so many musicians when they are trying to conjure such a landscape will revert to synthetic music of some right kind. right and right it's fascinating to hear you talk about this by using rather traditional instruments if you will uh it's right. fascinating to me that the future for you in in your mind 
is really connected to the past, I suppose. I mean, this future landscape is 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 really anchored in these older instruments, I suppose, and in your case. Well, I think the, the, the traditional jazz trio can um, present a vision of the future just as easily as a synthesizer does. I mean, future is not all technology. The future is also inner landscapes. I mean, being able to travel inside your mind or if you want to, I, you know, if you want to holographically go inside your mind, you can go to the whole universe. So, you know, yeah. it, as far as going to other planets, um, that, that that has much to do with the future. And that's not all invested in technology. That's the inner landscape is as much a part of it. And that can be explored on traditional instruments as much as synthesizers or anything like that. Yeah, I just think that that's a, is it, do, you, do you agree maybe that that's a knee jerk that we, we tend to think that technology is reflective of what the future is going to be, like technological development? Right, well, actually, until you mentioned it, I never thought of it. But now that you mentioned that, I, that I actually have thought of that. And I'm just thinking that that, that is part of the calculation of sorts that, that, you know, and I've done stuff with synthesizers and stuff, you yeah, know. Yeah. So that, that's the whole thing. But I, I, I actually am caught up in the idea that's, Okay, with Sun Ra, despite the fact that he has used electronic instruments and was one of the first to use a Moog synthesizer, and and that's a part of his vision that he actually also understands that that acoustic instruments can, can give a tip to the to futuristic ideas and landscapes just as much as a synthesizer can. I mean, because I mean, first of all, a, a scientist can do equate does equations with mathematics so you can you know you can calculate stuff on pluto in an equation and scientists were doing that before a computer and, yeah, you know, yeah. obviously computers help mathematics and doing equations that are so cumbersome that they can you know but scientists were doing that way before they were doing things on computers so um uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I, I don't, I don't sit around thinking about that, but that, that has been part of the calculation that I, I can generate something on a, with a scale on it, or with, or a group, of, a cluster of notes on the piano, that has everything as much to do with walking down the street on Planet X, that then you know technology, yeah, would generate. Yeah, it is, but it is on a, in a materialistic society, you tend to view markers of progress by the state of technology you know we, right right we look back on and laugh at the way things you know how giant phones used to be or you know and now we're in a weird state in terms of mediums where you know a lot of physical product is not really sell is rather it's it's most of it's been dispatched we do everything Right. With intangible digital products and that's supposed to be the way but then at the same time you get pushback you get a wave of people who are like you know, I'm going back to cassette tapes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, this song conjured some of these notions for me. There are two solos in this song, I believe. Michael and Newman each take uh, solos. Yeah, the Bissio solo, that's monumental. Um, and, and the thing about Mike that I really like is there's a whole school of bass players 
uh, he's not influenced by any of them, but Gary Peacock, um, Charlie Hayden, David Isaacson. See, I mean, there, there's aspects of all those guys in him that can be kind of, um, if you have like a loosely swinging situation that, that, that influence comes out, you know, Scott LaFarle is another one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and obviously I just named a bunch of non-Afro-American bass players. And I'm not thinking in terms of that, but I'm just saying that those, there's a whole school of those guys that are really, really extremely strong individuals. And I don't want to say he channels them, but, but there's an aspect of him I can bring out in certain type of swinging situations that he has an exquisite feel for. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, yeah, I, I really love his solo on that. There's not, I don't want to overthink it because I really, his solo on that is just exquisite. Yes, absolutely. The, and then, uh, Newman has a rather snare focused drum solo, right. if that makes sense. It, it skitters a little bit. Newman holds it together. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 Mister Hold It Together. Okay. For this show, I I just feel there's a level of um, maturity and um, in what he's doing and, and and glue that really gives me a lot of freedom. I mean, the thing about a jazz trio like this, I can kind of pretend you know to be a Jamal or somebody you know while being as out as possible, and it's just really good to have that type of glue to allow me to go up on my tangents or um you know kind of wear a mask as a straight ahead jazz player yeah which i i have all those things inside of me you know and it, had i decided to go that way that would have been easy because i grew up with that but um but it's just you know i, I mean I, I as far as the solos go that's not even though those guys have solos that was not meant to be like a that's meant to be kind of an ensemble piece but you know as it took off in the studio they took solos yeah no and i i i mostly i mean i raised them because they're both uh cool solos but you also right. don't take one as i as i recall well it, i i'm playing you are playing yes but you you're within the, it, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, not, but, but, it's not that you're not involved but you don't right. there's not a showcase for you yeah, I don't step out on that and say this is the Matt Ship solo. No, <laughs> is there a purpose to that, or it just felt in the moment that that was the thing to do? Um, it's meant to be an ensemble piece, but where everybody's kind of where everybody's kind of soloing, but there's a jazz underpinning, and that's what's holding it together. Yeah, that that, that that's the what that piece is about. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's move on to the next piece on the record, which is a. Percussion shaker led piece with some Marco bass. It's called Blue Desert. Thank you. 
Well, that might be the. I mean, it's not. It's not influenced directly by pygmy music, but I did want to set up like some type of drum pattern, and he used a shaker on it. And basically, you know, I'm doing my little thing in force, and um, I think it's been so long since I remembered. And then Michael's kind of sneaking up on it as if he's some type of counterpoint to the shaker. So that that's, I mean, I guess it, it more takes on like something like West African music, you know, um, than direct pygmy. But it, but that's the most African of the African things, and it's meant to be like a a dialogue of, of t talking drums where all three instruments are taking that, that quest. And that's, uh, you know, the most African of the African influenced things on the album. We invoked the, the term spooky earlier. There are some pretty eerie chords on the piano here. Um, right. And the drumming is minimalist, which actually makes it somehow more frightening. <laughs> it right. is more daunting. Uh, is it meant to be a particularly... By, and also, is this primarily an improvisation or... Yeah, well, I, I, I ran the concept by them in the studio. Like, you do this, you do this, you do this. You know, they picked the exact patterns and, and notes. But, I mean, I, I, it was a definite concept. Very, I mean, very explained and, and, like, your role is this and nothing else, you know? Yeah, so when you, <laughs> so, you're calling back to the, the pygmy music, is there uh, any purposeful intent to make it, making it a little bit unsettling for a piece? Well, I, I think my nature is unsettling so it, it uh, you know it naturally i think i can either be like slightly unsettling or extremely i don't want to say pedantic but extremely not unsettling you know i'm either cocktail or out of some sort so <laughs> um, and i don't know if i really straggle in between i uh, maybe actually i do but uh <laughs> I, I it wasn't meant to be unsettling it was meant to it, it was it was meant to be the counterpoint to cosmopolitan in the sense that on one one realm you're you're directly and this is like maybe going through a William Burroughs novel in some ways. I mean, you know, you're you're going in the cosmopolitan, you're going through a futuristic city exactly now. It, it's futuristic in the same sense that maybe some of Herbie Hancock's, future, you know, I don't want to say future shock, but in the sense that maybe Watermelon Man or something like that was in there's a little kind of African something, but it, it's still, it, you know, you're not in the jungle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're still, you're in a spaceship somewhere. Yes, exactly. It doesn't, it feels like I'm in a city listening to that one. <laughs> mm. It doesn't feel like I'm in some, it's almost, it's so sparse, but it has a, it creates a bit of, this is just me. Obviously I might need to go to a doctor, but I feel <laughs> a little claustrophobic. Like I feel like a little, it's like an intensity. It raises the hairs on my skin a little bit. So something's going on. I feel like I'm shut right. in. Yeah. Right, right. Like something's coming. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, that's the other thing about the album. It's meant there's, there's always something coming and you're always kind of being slightly warned that, you know, don't get too comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll move on to uh, a piece that uh, features the band coming in rather gently. There's uh, I believe it's a lot of brushwork and spare bass and rather searching progression uh, by you on the piano. It's called silence of.
Well, I think that's meant, I mean, I guess if there's any precursor for that, if, which there's not really, but uh, I would say maybe Paul Blair or something. I mean, it's meant to be a, a piano trio ballad in the tradition of, say, I'm trying to think of some trios that something Paul Blair might have done, both early um, ECM and then late ESP. Mm-hmm. Um I, I mean, it's just meant to be a, a, a tone poem for the piano, but it's a trio thing, and it's meant to bring out Bissio's, um predilection for um, the basses that I mentioned earlier, for kind of following in their tradition, even though those aren't his; those are not his major influences. But I, I was just talking about a certain bass tradition, and it's just kind of meant to um, be a fluffy pillow. <laughs> it's meant to be a fluffy pillow, but it has a. A rather exploratory feeling, and and even this notion, silence of it's it's a it's like a fragment of a a phrase almost. What is that? Right. What does that title connote to you in terms of the song? Even. Um. Well, it, it connotes that in, in, for any explosion, there is a silent core somewhere. So I mean, I think I had a piece on some album once called "The Silent Explosion," and um, this this is always connoting that at the at the bottom of anything. Even if it's some um, like the most crazed, hyper crazed thing you can think of, there's a core of emptiness or or silence that allows the eruption to happen. Uh-huh. So this is just exploring that that inner core of um of of I, I don't know I don't want to say silent intensity, but of 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 emptiness that's at the core of anything. Yeah, a, a void can be noisy, like a right. Uh, exactly yeah it, it has its own sound uh silence i think uh right. so but but this is not silent you know I no mean, the it, song the piece is not silent but it, 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 it's a it's a ballad but it's not silent. right okay and okay that's fascinating so that is this a piece where the title comes well after or like i mean the the, the title uh, in, a, in an instrumental piece like this one uh, it can be an afterthought. It can be. It can have real intent. Uh, right. You're saying. Well, I don't. I don't remember if I when I what the process was exactly. If I had titles when I went in, I know I. You know, I probably did because I remember. I think you know. Usually, the recording engineer Jim Colasi after the pieces, he says, "What is that called?" And I don't recall having in my notebooks piece number one, number two, number three, and then title and then after. So I think I had a very specific concept and a few kind of brief. I won't say chord changes, but I had some um, direction for this, and and I, I assume I probably had a title beforehand. Okay, all right. I, I'm always curious about. I've been speaking with more and more instrumental uh, musicians these days, and I love talking about the titles because the titles are have these interesting stories. Uh, unlike a, a lyric-based song, you know, or, or with a chorus or something. They right. can be completely abstract, but they can have so much more meaning in some ways. Uh, and so that's why I like asking about these things. So forgive me if I, I do so again as as we go. I know there's a few songs about the state of mind and, and your brain and and just thought processes. So we might get into that, but it could be it could be I'm just making stuff up or right. reading too much into it. But I'm fascinated by titles. So uh, we're going to move on to a song that uh, this piece has a... I thought a, a kind of a hip hop flavor inspired by noisier, uh, cacophonous sort of progressions. It's called Flying Carpet. <laughs> ¶¶ 
<laughs> that one, yeah. Well, actually, the, the, the basic idea of that piece, I, I think I went in wanting to really feature Newman on it. Now, I, it's been so long since I've listened to the album, I'm, I don't remember how it unfolded, but the beginning of it is actually kind of just slightly inspired something I remember from Mahavishnu Orchestra. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> and um, it's just, you know, a simple little van. And it's, um, ba so basically we're taking a fusion vamp and trying to make it into a free jazz thing. It doesn't really get any deeper than that. And that's what it was. And I, that was one of the things we had to try quite a few times to get it where I really wanted to get it for the album. Because I, I, it, I just had a very basic concept of, um, you know, taking fusion and a, a fusion idea and trying to really open it up and making it free jazz but being able to get back to the to that vamp somehow in a way that worked what was it about the notion of a, a fusion piece that appealed to you well I, a i knew it wouldn't end up being fusion b I, you know i since i did all those hip-hop albums in the early or hip-hop inspired stuff in the early 2000s there's always a line through an album where i'm trying to um reference something i did earlier and just you know keep in within the, the the recipe or the stew or the mix all kinds of ideas let them resurface so and, and when they resurface they're a completely new thing than they were 10 or 12 years ago yeah you know so um even if they resurface just for a few seconds i'm mindful of the sweep of the vocabulary throughout a 20 or 30 year period so um it was just the idea of letting you know it, the idea of a vamp that might have been explored in the early 2000s kind of resurfaced for just a few seconds. And um, that also, to me, when I talked about the city landscapes earlier, yeah. w whenever cities are rebuilt or anything, there's always parts of the old city or whatever. You know, so I'm, I'm always kind of involved with the different architecture of the landscape, but allowing aspects of the old city to maybe be there with, in rubble or not in rubble, maybe just, you know, but so that that was kind of a part of the architecture with that too. Yeah, you know we we tend to these days in particular we tend to consume culture with a greater sense of plurality. Like we don't, I don't think generic signifiers matter as much anymore. Right. So this notion of fusion, which was ahead of its time uh, at one point, is just sort of normal now. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's quite normal for uh, a single artist to incorporate all sorts of, asp you know, generic signifiers, I suppose, or, or motifs in their work. Do you think that's healthy for music or does it water things down? Or does it make oh, everything? Well I, well, I think all music's always been about synthesis. So, I mean, if you go back to Scott Joplin, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's tr traditional Afro-American things with, aspects from classical piano so i i don't you know jelly roll morton incorporated everything in the environment so on one level it's just business as usual but on another level i i and i don't know what purity is and i don't you know okay but to me like somebody like albert eiler is extremely pure right person and then once you get into kind of a postmodern thing then you get to a thing where you know uh, you know, I, it can get weird where, like, you know, people just study a bunch of diff different stuff and incorporate it in, and you're you're wondering what the glue is of the person underneath, you know. So I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I all I can say is that to me, music has always kind of been about synthesis. But yes, there's a, a certain type of mindset now where 
and you know, and I don't know. I don't. I don't know where the the actual where it gets to be a gimmick or where it's right. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the the cultural and open minded enthusiast in me thinks it's heartening, and the cynic in me thinks it's going for some kind of mass appeal. Like I, I just need to appeal to everyone. Right. Right. And yeah, and that yeah. can be that can be a weird. I'm not saying you're doing this on flying carpet, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it did. Well, I, I, I doubt that's going to appeal to everyone. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. It's one of the highlights of this, uh, this record. Yeah, that's why I actually, I mean, I, I, to get what I wanted to get on that, it had to really work. And that was, you know, we, we really worked on that in the studio to make sure it got there. Yeah. Okay. We move on now to a, a fascinating piece it's fascinating because as far as i can recall you're not on it uh it is a, a bass and and sort of trap kit thing called scrambled brain It's a fascinating piece. There's almost like a blues progression that emerges, like about uh, right, right, halfway through, three minutes in or something. What's going on on Scrambled Brain? Um, well, I just actually, I mean, it's, I just wanted kind of a nice little interlude. First of all, it's, it's meant to be an interlude of sorts, you know, and it's meant to give listeners the relief of not hearing me. For you know, well, I mean, meaning that you know, you got to think that you're programming an album along the way. You had to be able to refresh people's brains and have them have resets and stuff in the journey through an album. So that's meant to be there. And, it, and then, so the basic concept between it was a kind of nice little jazzy blues feeling and um, drum and bass in 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 the generic way that you, you actually mean drum and bass in, in trip hop, but um, this being transposed to a jazz situation. But I want it kind of both the illusion of like the drum and bass as it might have been in the two th early 2000s in a um, trip hop album and something to function in a, a, a real jazz trio situation. I see. Okay. So I think this notion of it being an interlude is, is fascinating. It is, it is a part of the record. It is an interstitial component of the record, but it, it does sort of, st it stands alone in so many ways. Right, right, exactly. And with that, it stands alone that if somebody wanted to add it in a mixtape and along with, you know, a bunch of electronic artists and stuff, even though it's an acoustic jazz thing, it, it could work that way. Oh, that's interesting. That was not your intent necessarily, was it? No, that's not the intent, but that was in the back of my mind, especially considering, I, you know, I, I had been involved with the electronic world all that period. So, um, you know, I, I, I really, um, I, I mean, no, it wasn't. That's not meant in the, in the studio. It's meant to really compactly be a part of this album for that. But it's also meant the fact that it can stand alone on its own. Yeah, that, it, that would happen. I mean, I wasn't sitting in the studio thinking that somebody could put this on the next tape, but <laughs> but but that's there in the background of the thought process somehow. I want to go back to this notion of you sitting in the studio while Michael and Newman are, are performing Scrambled Brain. What are you physically actually doing in the moment when they're when uh, they're playing? I, I went in the control room and I, I gave them some instructions and, you know, 
for a feel and how to negotiate it. And then, uh, then I sat back with the engineer and listened to it as they played. Okay, you're not conducting things, so to speak. No, no, I would never do that to those guys as far as like, you know, standing in front of them and waving my hands or anything. <laughs> I just like the notion of you nodding things, you know, pushing things forward. But you, you, your essential role when they're playing is to give them a, a basic construct and then just see what happens? Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Okay, this is a, this is a dramatic piece. It's, it's like a chase scene almost. It's like a... It's, to me, it could be uh, the score of a suspenseful, unsettling sequence in a film. It's called Microwave. It's a riff, and that line is the, the glue of the piece, you know. And it's kind of, um, I don't know, that line could be something off of a Prokofiev album, or, or it could be, I, I mean, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I, I wrote it, but I, I don't know where the actual inspiration for that line is. Something I wrote years ago, and it's been sitting in, you know, one of my notebooks, and it seemed like, like right for this piece. But it, it's definitely a very dramatic, cinematic um type of thing and actually I, I i usually do that live with the trio and a couple of people have said it reminds them of stravinsky that line yeah you know? yeah that's that's there i think that's there for sure and right. it's very frenetic uh, right but it, yeah it's meant to be very cinematic and it's also meant to um just elicit a you know i mean we can go anywhere from that but that line's strong glue to bring it back together did you see something in a film that conjured this? Um, I don't remember because I actually wrote that line years ago, so right. I don't remember. When you write a line like that, do you make a note of the context ever? No. I see. No, it's just usually the, the, composite, the writing is quick and like done on inspiration, you know, whenever, whether it's, you know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You sit, but I don't, so I don't remember. But, you know, I, I know Ram Blake, the pianist, actually, you know, his whole life is film. And, and he actually sits around thinking of scenes in Hitchcock and stuff. And, and he, I don't do that because my, but my, my soundtrack 
my my cinematic track is you know my own explorations into out-of-body travel and stuff like that so ah. um, it, it's kind of my own you know it's not but that that that's um really works for us because it's, it's tailor-made for kind of like newman and where, where he's at and stuff he can do and he really holds it together extremely strong and and because of that i can go anywhere on that piece once that line's established it really can become a free line throw a free jazz throw fair where i can go anywhere and, and that the line just really and newman's drumming is such strong glue for us that it just really holds it together right we uh i get a lot of grief from people visiting our house because i got rid of our microwave I, I feel like <laughs> microwaves are the scourge of modern cuisine. I, I hate microwaves. Do you like microwaves? Well, I I, I don't know if I do. My I, we have a George Foreman grill in, in our house. That, <laughs> that's not that, a microwave. Not in oh, any that's way. Not a micro okay, that's my wife swears <laughs> by that. So I guess we don't have a microwave anymore. But I I actually named that more. Um, I, I was reading it's just some physics books that I was looking at around the same that time and. You know, um, uh, it has nothing to do with the actual microwave that you cook in. Okay, you are you a, you're a physics buff, are you? Um, I, I find modern physics to be really good for the imagination. You know, it's not not a matter of me being a physics buff, but it's a matter of it's just really good for your imagination just to start envisioning high level, you know, high energy physics. Oh, modern. That's that's fast. I I regret not doing better in physics in high school. I let it go, and then I never did. You study physics in any way? I mean, not really. I always read a lot, but it's not a matter of really having to understand any of it. It's a matter. In fact, it's more of a matter of not understanding, you know, right. but letting your imagination go somewhere. Right. Okay. Well, that's fine. Now I got to check out a physics book. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We move on. Speaking of imagination, uh, this is a, a song with a, a busy piano progression and uh, it's called Mind Space. There's no bass on that. No that's that's why it was. It's a piano, it's a drum duo, and that piece is definitely it's about the talking drum. I mean, it's just about like really trying to create. Um, a, it's a dialogue between drums and piano, and it's definitely like about the African talking drum. But he's using a kit, and it's um that that's the only concept behind it. Okay, so it's a it's a conversation just between you two. What is there a reason that uh, it's just you and Newman? Yeah, because I really wanted to, without using a talking drum, I, I wanted to try to get across the idea. But the, but it's not like in the jungle. I mean, this is signals being transmitted in outer space. So, But it's through the, if there's an idea of a trans-African language that's that's mutated to the idea of outer space travel, and um, it, 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 it's that. So you basically you have, it, it's as, as if, somebody in the jungles of Africa was teleported 
into outer space and they're transmitting signals via a talking drum. But all of a sudden now it's, it's abstract signals in outer space. And that's kind of the concept being transmitted on that cut. I see. Okay. I feel like because we live in such dire times in terms of climate change and uh, various uh, administrations around the world, I feel like there's a deeper and more prolonged fascination with this notion of living in space. Right. Leaving Earth. <laughs> Are you someone who is contemplating such things? Uh, well, I'm. we're kind of stuck here <laughs> until we really get out. So uh, let's, let's just say I always contemplate traveling to higher planes. That, that doesn't necessarily mean like physically moving somewhere. That means just trying to get in touch with yourself and uh, find that bedrock of um, a place that might energetically as far as frequency wise not be planet earth even though your body's on the planet earth at the time i i don't mean to conjure any kind of cliche but does music take you to a different place yes it takes you to a different mental space it, it well definitely um it, it definitely that's what this music has always been about to me i mean i when i was a kid i remember listening to um um what's like not bells but like this albert Eiler album with don cherry I can't even remember the name with it. And actually, I remember falling asleep as listening to it. And I actually was half half asleep, half awake. And I still heard like the notes that Albert Eiler and Don Cherry were playing. But I didn't hear them as notes. I actually heard them as like language, real language. Oh. And they were actually talking to me. So through the instruments and, and transmitting some type of hope or some type of something. So I, I always, to me, the language is, the music is about, the, this music, okay, not music in general, all music is about language, because all music is whatever language, you know, even G.G. Allen defecating on stage is, you know, which he used to do. Interesting reference, yes. <laughs> but no, e even that is, is, a, is a language. G.G. <laughs> so Allen was certainly communicating something every time he took the stage, yeah. <laughs> Right. But it was a different language. But th this music to me is about a very specific internal um, thing that's both metaphysical, trans-African, because, I mean, we're not African. We're Americans, you know. <laughs> but very simply, I mean, we grew up, our whole sensory system is one of it being American. But that doesn't mean that there's all kinds of things in the stew and in the mix that you have access to or that that translates themselves some way to you in a modern way. And um, to me, this, mu this music, when I grew up listening to Coltrane, it was always like this deep language that had kind of mystical overtones to me. So, um, so when I talk about language, I'm talking about something that I can't quite put my hands on, but there's something deeply embedded in our, in the energy system of our brains. Um, and I, when I say brain, I mean the brain is a physical thing encased in your skull. So I'm talking about some type of energy system that's not necessarily encased in your skull. It's it's there wherever there is. And um, um, so yeah, the music always it takes me to that that there that energy system, whatever that is and wherever it is, it takes me there. We've been talking a lot about. Within the, I guess, within the realm of jazz, that's what our conversation has mostly centered around. Um, but you raised uh, Gigi Allen there. 
and I, <laughs> I, I have some semblance, uh, some knowledge of this, and I, it's a little vague. So I'm, I'm hoping you can clarify what, what is your relationship to punk rock? Did, did punk rock transport you in any way? Um, I think it's my, my relationship to that is more social, where I grew up, um, around a lot of it, and it, I, I, I related to the um, element of um, revolt and in it. But at the same time, the people I knew that were into it tended to be more open-minded. So like when I was growing up, if I had friends that were into punk rock, they tended to be the people that if they came over to my house, if I put a Coltrane album on, they really dug it also. Mm-hmm. So, that, so then I, I was open to checking out where they were and what they were into, and it was more of a social thing where I would go out to hear certain bands with them, and you know, I was kind of into the whole vibe of it. I don't, you know, I think that's more my relationship to punk rock. Did you not have some connection with Homestead Records? Oh yeah, and then later when I moved to New York, yeah, I mean, well, not only to Homestead, I mean, Henry Rollins produced a few of my albums, so right, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I it actually got very concrete my connection to it at that point. Yeah, you know, whereas the business structure that was putting out punk rock albums was interested in free jazz you know yeah okay i i just wonder if you uh i wondered about it i i've heard this through the years you know that you have this these connections and anyone who can see your some of your collaborators the people you worked with can see it i just wondered if that's still that spirit still stirs within you um the spirit is still there yeah yeah. yeah, it's still there. Okay. Yeah. You brought up Gigi Allen for crying out loud. I had to <laughs> ask about something. Yeah, okay. All right, now we move on to a rather minimal piece. Lots of sustained single notes, pretty dark chords, uh, acro bass again. Void of C. I think it's in the title, except C being, you know, the collective unconscious, not um, not as the ocean. Well, uh, yeah, the ocean, yeah. Like, like the ocean is a great metaphor for the, the collective waters, you know, and waters being the, the subconscious mind feels. So, um, um, the, but there, I mean, it's definitely about that space. You know, I'm always talking about these metropolitan futuristic landscapes and, the thing there is we're trying to create a very kind of futuristic, beautiful Zen rock garden to where you can step away a lot of empty space and, you know, a lot of nice resonance. Okay. And it, it, this one is another, it, it conjures a horror film <laughs> type thing. Well, actually I wasn't going for that with this. I mean, to me, I was trying to conjure open space, you know, and um, not, not in the sense like a Bill Frizzell open space or somebody, try, you know, Americana thing, but I, I, open space in this. Well, actually, maybe it is kind of Americana in, in the sense that um, the open space in, in the sense that, no, I would say it's more 
open space in in a if if you could transport a Zen rock garden up into um it's Pluto. <laughs> you can say a lot with minimalism, can't you? Yeah, yeah, you can. You know, and that it definitely has the minimalist um spirit to it. You know, the other thing is everybody in my group has a very dense sound. And I'm I'm the older I get, the more I want to undense everything. Yeah. And I was um definitely you know, I, I told them when we did that, anytime you go for a phrase, if you hear three notes, only play a half of the first note, you know, don't everything else cut out, you know. Oh, fascinating. That was just that was just the feeling in that in that moment for this one. Yeah, yeah. And that void it speaks to the void, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's another that's a lovely one. And it, that's another one that haunts me. Uh mm. I have to say. So, mission accomplished. If you were trying to haunt me, you did it. Okay. Well, I don't you're trying to scare everybody to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to a uh, a showcase piece for you. Uh we were discussing earlier how you didn't take a a solo in scramble brain, but now we we come to the nature of It's the nature of me, the nature of the piano. That's meant, I mean, it's just what it it sounds like. There's no, there's no occult numbers here or anything that's um, meant to be like um, a modern showcase of, of what it's like to be in the modern mentality of somewhere between Bud Powell and Amar Jamal, if you can imagine. And, and, but to be a modern pianist and to do what I do. It's sort of autobiographical? Um, yeah, I guess you could say that in that in that way, yeah. I don't know why I came up with that, but I mean, and it's some obviously everything you do is a, an extension of you, a part of your expression. But when you put it this way, this nature of you, I, I don't know. It's like you wrote a little memoir. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's meant to remind people because the al- the nature of the album is very cinematic. It's very um, landscaping. It's meant to remind people that I am a pianist. You know, other. I mean, I'm you know other than uh, it's not that I don't do a lot of active playing piano playing on the album but uh, you know i just want to throw a reminder in yeah that I, I'm, I'm a pianist that comes out of a certain tradition so yeah you know with music critics with fans there's a lot of um oh this sounds like this or that guy is like this guy uh and you've gotten that you know people mention some, right. some of the bigger names in the history of of the music in, right yeah, you, yeah i started i started i heard you started to put a c there and then you went back <laughs> you, you you were going to mention that name right yeah there's people there that people mention right. and and i'm just curious what how how does that make you feel i mean there's a lot of there can be some pressure there there can be some error there there can be you can be they can compare you to people that you don't even intend to to sound like as a as, uh, 
I don't mind any of that because to me, you know, even though like this is my music vision and it's a distinctly, um, you know, finite world. My, I mean, my world. The thing is that the, the whole music as a whole is a language and it's a field. There's a field effect behind it. Right. The music. So it's all there and it's all information out there. And and even within being me, there's times where you just tap into a field of language. So you might do something that invites a comparison to Monk or to Cecil Taylor or to Paul Blay or to Hassan Ibn Ali or to Elmo Hope or to Horace Silver. And if somebody hears that for a second, I don't mind that because I don't even though I'm very conscious of trying to be just being me and and doing my thing i'm connected to the human race and being that i'm a jazz player i'm connected to the whole field of language so i I think it's um if something arises in in the act of playing that reminds somebody of something that that's fine because i'm it's the whole thing you know you can take a step back this is my music yeah but if, if you looked at it from a higher dimension and and from maybe some angel on another planet who's mind is in a whole different dimension they could see the whole output of all jazz as one brain and um so therefore if i'm doing my part in the whole continuum and and because of that somebody you know views something as wow that you know that bar sounds like it could be out of um the unit structure period of cecil taylor and that bar sounds like it could be uh, i mean the thing is you know we're human beings and there's people it could have been somebody that lived on the planet in 1920 who you never met and is dead and you could actually look a little like them because we there you know there's a whole genetic field we're sharing and and being a, a musician in, in in the whole thing there's going to be things i do because i'm not that out where everything what i'm doing is you know so new that it's outside of music no it's a part of the, the field of music and it's a part of the field of jazz so um I don't mind. I don't mind. You know, if somebody's sitting there and saying that, you know, you sound like McCoy Tyner and Cecil Taylor, you know, I would mind that because it's not a, it's not true, and b, it's just a lazy way to think about it. But if some, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if somebody, but if somebody sees that I have the a, I'm a part of the the continuum, which is, you know, if somebody considers me that, I find that to I'm that I'm I'm um. I feel great that somebody sees me as a part of this great continuum. And then because of that, if there's you know aspects of it that sometimes remind somebody of the greats of the past, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be in that. And, you know, especially, so yeah, that, that's, so I don't mind that as long as it's not the lazy way where, you know, somebody just might, because you have, a, you know, play something dissonant, or Cecil Taylor, yeah, you know? Yeah. But I mean, in the course of this conversation, you've mentioned maybe 25 names 25 people i find that this community you mentioned also the continuum there is a a deep-seated celebration of the community within the community when i speak with jazz musicians there's a, right. a, a constant reverence for the players and do you think that's unusual do you, i mean you hear it in different communities different hardcore different hardcore fans will will have a similar like oh you should hear this guitar player or that drummer but right. I just I, I've noticed it more when I speak with uh, it's unusual for me to speak to someone and have them reference 30 other players in the course of a discussion. You know what I mean? There's something going on with the continuum you're part of in that you are celebrating each other. Uh, more right. Right. More. Is there a reason for that? Do you think? I'm not sure. I mean, I, from my age, I think it's probably for youth 
somebody younger than myself, I think it might be healthy to have a, I don't want to say disregard for the tradition, but to have the middle finger up to the jazz tradition because it's so easy being a jazz musician to start worshiping older players. and Because the, the, the conundrum for a jazz player is that people think that there's something that's right. You know, like, yeah. for instance, you, you know, you listen to a, Charlie, you listen to, a, I don't know, whatever, say Hank Mobley play or something, and they're doing it right. And you, you always feel that, like, your generation or you, you're always aspiring to whatever, and you, you know, is right and or or legit or, or and what you do always feels that it's something non-legit about it. And that's the conundrum for a jazz player that you're always trying to get that thing that's legit and and you know in a certain point you figure out there's really nothing legit it's always people just doing their thing and then a later generation sees that as legit and um so to trust yourself is the hardest thing to get to and i think it's probably healthier for a younger jazz player to kind of have contempt for the tradition yeah because within the contempt you're forcing yourself to have to trust yourself and even if there's a degree of um of immaturity in that contempt is still probably healthier. So, um, and, and I say that being that I'm in a generation when, when I was kind of moved to New York, where people there were younger jazz players. There was an in tradition, you know, with Wynton Marcellus. There was a whole in the tradition thing that the whole thing was worshiping older players, you know, and and it was almost like you know that there was that there was a period where there's jazz and it was tr- legit and now stuff people do is not jazz and you know um so like it was about worshiping older players and older styles so there was definitely an element where i was like you know f you to everybody you know (laughs) i mean including cecil taylor you know i was actually very um even adamant about saying not negative stuff about him but dismissing him at one point and, um, well, that that contempt, that spirit of contempt that you were referring to earlier, I think that's where the innovation comes from. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you had to force to trust yourself, and I mean, that's the hardest thing in jazz to do is to believe that what your your brain generates could have just as much legitimacy as what um, you know Sonny Rollins' brain generates or something. Yeah. You know, now, I mean, now the sociology behind the music in their period was different than it is now. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're trying to tap into the sociology that allowed their music to be vibrant in their period, you know, that's not going to work. So within trusting yourself, you had to realize that what you're doing is different than what they did, you know, and that includes even somebody like Cecil Taylor or Albert Eiler, who are like a lot closer to what people would think of my idiom than say Sonny Rollins. But, um, so I, I, I'm 57 now. So in talking to you and talking, you know, and referencing all these names, and I've also gotten a lot of critical claim for being, you know, original. So I, I, I feel, I don't feel any, like I'm being subsumed by the past. No. By, yeah. By, by talking about all these people who, even when I would have said things about, I mean, I've said a lot of negative things about Herbie Hancock mm-hmm. in, in press, but I, I actually really love Herbie, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a way to kind of, I feel like it's a self-propulsion almost. It's just a way of telling yeah. yourself that you are you don't have to emulate someone to create something right. great. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel any, I, like I'm being 
choked by talking about all the people. And I, I you know, I love jazz. So I mean, I don't, I don't feel any compunction saying it. I, you know, I love Bud Powell. I love Amar Jamal. I love Bill Evans. I love Paul Blay. You know, I love Jackie Byard, and I have no problem admitting it or talking about it. You know. We're up to forty names now. You've you've mentioned, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is great. I love hearing these things because my, the hope is that it sparks people to check these people out. Right. Yeah. No, it's great. We move on. We move- I, I, you're going to hear another name. So I, I think, <laughs> as far as um, what spiritually really drives me, pianistically wise, these days more than anybody, and it's not that I ever sit down and try to listen to him and try to emulate him, but I think the spirit of Mal Waldron more than any pianist actually kind of um, informs me. And, and one of the greatest compliments I ever got was from the late, great Jerry Allen. I ran into her at a festival about three years ago, and she pulled me aside and said, I'm the only pianist she's ever heard that actually um, can channel Mel Waldron. And that to me, coming, especially coming from her, was like uh, something that really uh, kept me going for a while. You know. <laughs> well, what is it about Mel Waldron's playing that, is in your psyche right now well mal's first of all he's one of the original minimalists he's a minimalist way before philip glass and um and and you know steve reich and those people he really is a minimalist and knows how to isolate a, a musical entity and gain all the weight from it you can get from it and he knows how to repeat it but make it sound different every time to make it gain or lose energy at will, depending on his will and what he wants it to do. He also is the um, equivalent of um, he's he's a you know he's a traditionalist in the sense that he worked with Billy Holiday, but then he worked with Gene Lee, and he's the ultra he's a modernist too, and it's hard to really bifurcate in him or the the, the traditionalist aspect in the modern. He's fearless. But he's also relaxed, and he's not right. ever trying to um, put something on you. You know, it's, it's there. You either deal with it or you don't. And, and he's, ha- you know, he's happy either way. You know, you know, you don't ever get the sense that he's trying to put a trip on you. It's just like this is Mal at the time, and Mal at different times is different things. Um, he's also the, um, as fiercely independent as Monk was, but, but you know within his own way. And he's one of the few pianists that I can listen to doing monk tunes, you know, Mm. very few pianists. I like to hear play monk, but he, he makes it work. And when he does it, he doesn't sound like monk, (laughs) but it still works. Um, what else about Mal? He's just, um, a joyous sound in the instrument, but it's deep and dark at the same time. And, um, his music is definitely rooted in his own psychosis. And I say that in a good way. I don't mean that negatively, but there's definitely a psychosis there of sorts, but it's rooted in it. But yet it's um, vibrant and fresh and you don't need to be in the headspace of that psychosis to get something out of it. Um, I can go on and on. I mean, he's just the <laughs> ultimate, he's the ultimate modernist to me, but he doesn't wear being a modernist on his sleeve. Yeah. And he can, he has that deep language in him, that deep, deep language that you can't quite. And he, he optimizes to me what I call a, a black mystery school of pianists, which is something really hard to to isolate. But it's definitely people that come from a non-traditional standpoint, but they have a, a touch and a way of hitting an attack on the piano that's non-traditional. And they're also their sound and the way their placement of ele- the elements 
is non-traditional. Monk is the ultimate embodiment of what I mean by the Black Mystery School. But Mal Waldron, I would say, is in it. Um, Hassan Ibn Ali, Elma Hope, um, Herbie Nichols to some degree, even though he's a different thing. Um, um, who else? Um, there's a bunch of other people that go in and out of it, but it's, it's a definite thing where, where it's already really hard to, you're, you know, the, the definite person who's not that, who's like the antithesis of, of the mystery school is like Oscar Peterson. So he, Oscar <laughs> Peterson, I'm sorry, I know you're Canadian. Yeah, you're, you're attacking <laughs> one of my countrymen here. Uh, right, yeah, but, no. <laughs> but, but Oscar Peterson is maybe in an attempt to, to put something in a mainstream type of way in a very kind of overt way. And what's interesting to me about Oscar Peterson, and I'm not, you know, Oscar Peterson's great. I'm not saying that, but he claims to be like the, um, the come from the lineage of Art Tatum, and Art Tatum is actually a, a complete space cadet, you know, if you really listen. <laughs> yeah, and I, Oscar Peterson is not a space cadet, so it's kind of um, interesting. But the, within the mystery school of piano, I'm trying to think of other people, you know, people that are playing now, Dave Burrell. Um, go is in that is definitely in that headspace. Cooper Moore goes in and out of it. Cooper Moore is um, c- kind of his own d- different world, so it's kind of hard to encapsulate him okay. in any of this. But um, I'm trying to think of other living players that that go in and out of that that school. But Mal Waldron and Randy Weston is is in it. Um, but Mal Waldron and Randy Weston and obviously Cecil Taylor is in it. And um, 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 Lyle Davidson, who recorded for ESP, and was somebody who I encapsulated in that school. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Mal and um, Wendy Weston might be the, the biggest two post-monk embodiments of that that abstract idea. And um, but anyway, Mal is is, is really a, a university and a phenomenon in and of himself that has never really. Um, you know, I, I, he just doesn't he doesn't lend himself for the, the jazz establishment to really get, you know, and but he's there as a presence, nevertheless, and a very powerful one. Yeah. The, the, as you describe Mal, I could see you. I could see where you're coming from. <laughs> you, you, right. A lot of what you said about Mal, I, I would attribute to you, the traits, I mean. And so I can see this. um you know, being idiosyncratic and, and stepping out and and really trying to challenge the form. Uh, yeah, that's all that's all within you. So I can see I can see how he's a building block for you. Right. Yeah. We move on to a very uproarious piece featuring the whole band. Uh, this is a mighty one. It's called Gravity Point. more uproaring than I meant it to be. It was meant to be kind of, because that head, well, it, it was meant to be more of kind of a straight ahead thing, but it ended up being like our kind of free jazz tour de force, you know? Yeah, stomp, it's just like a stomper. 
Right, right. So, I mean, it, it can it can go both ways. I mean, I can I, I could play that head and it could kind of stay in that groove. In it, but that's not what happened in the studio. But now, when we do that piece live, it, it tends to um, kind of stay in the kind of groove that the head establishes. But it's cool. It worked for. I mean, I think we needed to kind of blow our stack a little bit there. And, and I don't I don't want to say show we can do that, but. But it, it probably, I think, you know, we it was needed to blow blow our stack there to um, allow, you know, for whatever else was to come, which, you know, um, and I, I was, I was going to use a different metaphor, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, after, after a void of... Yeah, I, the, 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 the metaphor was three words also, shoot your, you can, you know. You can yeah, I, I think I understand. <laughs> You can say whatever you like. It's fine. Uh, right. I'm not. Uh, I'm not prudish. I'm not skittish. Right. You can say what you like. The after void of sea and the nature of. I can see what you mean by needing right. to kind of blow your stacks a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great one. It's just a great. I don't know if you recorded it that late in the session or. We recorded the session. I mean, I had the whole concept of the album in mind going in the studio. There's times you go in the studio where you just do a lot of stuff and you sculpt an album out of that. But this is something where I went in the studio with the exact format of the album and concept of it in mind and we recorded it exactly piece to piece as oh, it is on in sequence. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. So yeah, then in that sense, that's really cool actually. because uh, in that right. sense it does seem like a natural like, all right, let's just go. Let's go right. in and do this and, and that's what it sounds like. Right. Yeah. It's a lovely one. Well, we come to the end, which uh, the, the record ends in a slightly ruminative way, I suppose, with the title track, Piano Song. Well, that's my the tour de force for me for the I mean it's my favorite piece on the album in some ways, um, and it's really like the modern piano kind of waltz I've always wanted to write. I've written a few waltzes, but this is to me like the futuristic kind of outer space waltz that I've always wanted to do with the standard piano trio. And what? Why was it? Why did it take so long for you to achieve that, so to speak? Well. I don't know. <laughs> it just was something you hadn't quite done. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a piece on an earlier album of mine called, I think it's called just Wasp. And I, it's on, and it, I ended up being on, um, I can't remember the first time I recorded it was on expansion power release, which was an album on Hat Art with William Parker and Matt Mineri, viola, bass and piano. And it, I really glad, I, I'm really pleased with how it, turned out there and then I re-recorded it on an album called um, I've Been to Many Places which was a solo piano and I'm really pleased with how it came out there too. That piece actually I originally wrote when I was 18 it was um, originally called Waltz for Suzanne 
and then I just I changed it later to um, a few years later it was changed to Walsh to another girl's name who was my <laughs> girlfriend, and then later it got changed to Walsh to another girl's name who was girlfriend at a the time. Then I changed it to Walsh to my wife's name, and then I just changed it to Walsh. Okay. All right. <laughs> the ever shifting waltz. <laughs> right. Right. And then, and then there's another piece I did of that of a sort called um, Three and One, which was recorded in a trio with Mike Bissio and with Dickie. And um, that's kind of was actually inspired by Dave Brubeck, <laughs> another name. <laughs> right. But uh, but it's just kind of a, a puzzle. It, it's a waltz that has this um, it has a, a inner frolic theme, but we changed the notes that the intervals happen on at whim whenever um, we want to, but, but the actual intervolic structure stays the same, even though it can be done on any note. So that, that, and that worked out well within its thing, but this was, I, I've always wanted to do a, a plaintive kind of introspective waltz. And it took me a while to get to the introspection because the other ones kind of have a bouncy waltz feel. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense from, from what I, from my own experience listening to the song piano song as a an umbrella concept why did you title this record piano song and what does that mean to you well it means that the, that the piano intrinsically being the piano probably in some abstract like field of vibration or physics that probably okay if you're a composer you know, you you're, you can just get up in the morning and have something going through your head, or you can your your compositions can be kind of dictated to you by the instruments you play. And I had mentioned Chopin earlier as a composer; he's really piano centric. You can't think of him like outside of the construct of a piano. Right. So, um, the abstract idea behind that title was that that probably the piano elicits songs in and of itself that there's songs that are not, I don't want to say generic to the piano, but that are in the energy field of the piano that the piano would generate. Now that's also implied within that is that I'm a composer and I'm, my identity is one with the piano. So there's probably aspects of composition that are implied by the construct of Matthew ship, you know, and whoever, whatever I am, in an energy field um and so there there's probably some intersection at some point between me and a piano and then there might be an abstract field where that intersection between me and a piano generates the idea of certain songs and then also my trio so the trio is a construct in and of itself and there could be some intersection between the construct of a piano the construct of a piano trio the construct of me as a pianist composer and the construct of me with a jazz my jazz this jazz this jazz trio right. so all so all of that is to say that there's songs implied in all those fields and in, in whatever field the intersection of all those fields generates and um and therefore we're offering you this gift this album and these are the songs implied in in that field of vibration well between that amazing response and the discussion we had about the nature of it, it leads me to wonder what prompted all this reflection this is a very personal record for you when it oh yes yes when, definitely when, is. yeah and when it was released there it was accompanied by the announcement that it was your final recording 
Um, well, no, no, final recording on Thirsty Year Records. Oh, just that, on Thirsty Year, okay. Yeah, that, yeah. that was very clear and all that. People keep saying it was, but I, I was very clear. This, I'm my last album for Thirsty Year, and I've been involved with them. I, I have two albums coming out on ESP. Right. So, so why, why was there so much? Why was it important for you to frame it as the? Is that just a business thing, or why is it significant that you? Well, I've done I've done what I can do on Thirsty Year, both business wise and creative wise, and it's time to kind of move on. You know, okay. I, I'm not I'm not a spring chicken anymore. You know, fifty seven. <laughs> right. And how long how long is the, the the relationship with Thirsty Year last? Um, since the late nineties. Right. So it was personally and and professionally significant for you, but some people misread it as your farewell. Right. A lot of people misread it that way. I don't know how because it was really clear. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I am slowing down, though, and I'm going to probably – I mean, I only see one more album with this trio, with oh, that particular trio. Right. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I am slowing down. So, so uh, I mean, except, except, except for with Evil Perlman, who's tenor. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of albums coming on his out that I'm on. But, you know, as far as a leader, I, I will be – I mean, I've, I've, I've actually kind of said what I want to say in music. And I, you know, I, I want to. Um... Okay, so there is something to this. There's a finality. There, the the reason you're so reflective on this record is because you sense some sort of ending. There, there's an ending coming to the yes, <laughs> of, of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always going to try to perform live, you know, and I I would like to um, elegantly work my way into you know because I I will be an elder statesman at some point soon. I mean. I, Going to be that. so. I would like to elegantly be able to work my way into be a elder statesman, but at the same time, you know, it's this whole recording thing is kind of weird in this digital age now, and I don't know where the business of recording is going. Also, so hmm. I'm trying to really just establish myself playing, hopefully playing big festivals, and not really worried about. I mean, I will always document. There'll be stuff available, you know somehow at some point but i i'm just the the whole construct of making an album and promoting it and you know i've just been doing it for a long time and i don't really want to do it that much longer okay but that i'm not trying to create any false hope but that could change if the inspiration strikes right um I'm slowing down. <laughs> okay, all right. I didn't mean to. Yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to prod you into keeping, you know, doing something you don't want to do necessarily. Well, well let's just say, and I'm not. This is not meant in any, like, um, I, I, this is not meant in any bad way towards them. But I, I don't. I, even though I do have a lot of albums, I don't want to end up like having as many albums as Anthony Braxton or um, David Murray. You know, and I, I don't mean that. In a, I'm not. You know, that's their way they. Want about it and i you know anthony braxton is somebody i love i don't yeah. mean that in a pejorative sense but i just don't believe in in that type of heavy doc i, I mean i mean that might sound weird to people because i have a lot of albums so you do yeah. you have a lot of albums <laughs> i have a lot a lot of albums so so but i, I don't i, I want to slow down and okay kind of, and i say that because i really people say well you know you do so much you'll get bored no i want to smell the walk around and smell the coffee and stuff at some point i i've just been on a whirlwind of activity for 30 some years i really want to slow down and and like take a vacation and smell the beach some stuff i've just never done 
So, yeah, I mean, at this point, I would normally ask someone, you know, what's coming up next for you. It's some form of rest. Well, I have two albums on ESP coming up in January, a solo and a quartet. And um, I'm just out here gigging right now, which is cool. You know, there's no rest for the weary for a while. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, and for more information uh, about you, people can go to MatthewShip.com. Is that right? Yes, that's that's there on it in, in cyberspace. Cyberspace, MatthewShip.com. Matthew, thank you so much for this time going through Piano Song. Uh, I hope this was a, an interesting exercise for you. No, that was fun. I mean, I'm glad we did it because it made, brought up some stuff with me at the album. And it's a very, I mean, I, of course, you know, every album to artists is special for them. And, but this really was kind of a special album for me. I mean, it, outside of every, you know, it really was. And it, and I, it was it really meant a lot to me, and I, and I had a long relationship with Thirsty Years, so it, and it just brought up a lot of the time and, and love that went into making this album. So I'm glad we did this. Oh, nice. That's nice. Is there a particular piece we can leave people with in its entirety right now? That uh, you oh, must... that, that's that's up to you. If you're oh friend. my God, you're going to do this to me? <laughs> oh, but I, yeah. I'm just trying to think of things. There's so much to go through here. I'm just trying to think of something that makes. Sense. No, I, I I never dictate to. I mean, unless I'm one as a guest DJ, something. But I, you know, I, I I always think that that part of what makes is great is that you have a different perspective than mine, and yes. so you, you you might hear something and something that is a little different to me, and I, I that's more interesting to me than what I think. Okay, I am going to select Flying Carpet. I feel okay. like that's a really cool song no. and. That- that is a powerful piece that, that did get across everything and more than, than I was trying to get across on it. Okay. This is Flying Carpet by the uh, Matthew Ship Trio from the wonderful record Piano Song, which is out now uh, via Thirsty Year Records. And again, for more information, MatthewShip.com. Matthew, a tremendous right. pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and, and best thank- of luck with everything going forward. Yeah, no, thank you. This is great. I'm really glad you know, to have a chance to go through this and talk about all these beautiful things.
That was the 348th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Antica Podcast Network and is available on iTunes, Audioboom, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Overcast, among many other podcast platforms. If for some reason you can't find the episode you're looking for or you wish to learn more about me, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative or myself at vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please consider visiting patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. And for your efforts, if you like, I can send you a t-shirt in return. We can talk about it. Just send me a note. This episode would not be possible without our sponsors, Pizza Trocadero, whom you can call for pickup or delivery at 519-829-2444, or check them out at trocaderoguelph.ca. The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, and movie theater located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Planet Bean, freshly roasted fair trade certified organic coffee. Visit planetbeancoffee.com for more information about them. Granddad's Donuts, located at 574 James Street North in Hamilton, Ontario. Best donuts in the whole wide world. Visit granddads.ca if you like donuts and want to learn more about the best donuts in the whole wide world. And to have a whole meal's worth of ingredients delivered right to your Canadian home, visit hellofresh.ca and use the promo code CREATIVE50, that's creative with a K, 5-0, for 50% off your first order well that's it that's another episode thank you to Matt Ship for being on and uh, discussing this amazing amazing record piano song I hope you'll check it out at, uh, just find it online it's great and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him at the Guelph Jazz Festival which is uh, coming up soon here for me so I'm going to go see him there and uh, yeah I will talk to you very soon thank you for listening to this show goodbye for now are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.